You're listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, man, how's it going today? Not bad. Actually, we are super busy. I even had to bring in Tito and Boozebot, pouring us drinks all night. Nice. Oh, hey, what's up, Chris? Long time no see, amigo. Hope you're doing well, man. What's new in the cybersecurity world? Oh, hey, Tito. Not much, man. You know, lately I've been zoned in on data governance and AI ethics. Oh, snap. Speaking of AI ethics, Boozebot, stop playing on your phone. We got customers. These damn bots, they got to monitor their own sometimes. They sure do. The more Boozebot is trained like a human, the more he behaves like a human. Never saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, I just hope it doesn't turn on us one day. Plus, I need to stick around. What can I say? He makes a decent mojito. Alert, alert. Keyword mojito detected in near proximity. Hey, Chris. Would you like me to assemble one mojito for you? Yeah, Boozebot, that actually sounds good. Thank you. Here is how it's done. Place a handful of fresh mint leaves and four lime slices in a highball glass. Crush using a muddler. Then, add two teaspoons of sugar, one and a half ounces of white rum, and ice cubes. Top it with two ounces of club soda. Stir using a mixing spoon. Thanks, Boozebot. Well, all right, Chris, I got to get back to work. All right, man. Listen, keep that bot in check because this drink is on point. <laughs> Will do. We'll see you next round. I'm here with special co-host Mike Elkins. Hey, Chris. It's great to be back here on the awesome Barco podcast. Looking forward to the conversation. I'm glad to have you here. And we're also joined by Rohan Light an expert on governance, strategy, and risk capability throughout the data, evidence, and decision management value chain. He has also built up experience in AI ethics, trusted data use, and platform governance. Rohan, thanks so much for joining me at The Barcode. Uh, Kia ora. Uh, G'day, g'day. It's um, very good to be here. That is quite a mouthful to start a call. Um, it's a good thing that um, you've already uh, had a good day under your belts and it's not starting it. I'm very pleased to be here on the Barcode. Uh, I love you guys and I'm really interested in having a good conversation to come. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it as well. So first off, the flying fish theory. I've heard you use that term many times on LinkedIn. So I'm curious if you could tell us about the metaphor and what it stands for. So. Uh, the thing about the flying fish, why, the, why is it, why do I use that metaphor? And the whole bunch of reasons, the first reason is that data, we should think of it like water. So anytime we say something that uses the word water, swap it out and put the word data in, and it should be, it should come to relatively the same meaning. And the thing about fish is obviously they live within water. And they're these wonderful um, little creatures and um, they, you know, represent the self and the individuals and they flock together. They group together in schools and um, those, that's a good metaphor for our communities. But the interesting thing is we, we, don't, uh, we don't live below water. We, don't live, we live outside of the data world, right? 
So we only see fish when um, they are not in water. So the only time we see them properly. And so the flying fish is this concept that we grasp things, they change, um, but they change out of sight and they briefly leap into the air and we can briefly see some elements of it. So what it is, is a way to connect a whole bunch of ideas uh, in a causal manner. So that's the first critical thing. If you've seen this thing on the left-hand side, there should be a single point. That is the, the main thing you're uh, exploring. Mm-hmm. And then behind it, there will be five, three to five other main subpoints. And then behind that, three to five smaller subpoints. And this is where the school of fish comes into play, right? If you've ever seen a school of fish, it has this depth. It keeps changing. Its volume and its surface keeps changing. Data is like that because it depends you know, on who is looking at the data will come to the conclusions sort of thing. So the last key point on this, and I'll kick it back to you, is that it shows second law of thermodynamics. Uh, in other words, things progress in a certain direction. And the reason why I call that out is that I've needed to sort of deconstruct Newton's T. So, so Isaac Newton created the concept of time T in order to demonstrate relativity. We've gone on deeper into relativity, but we still, we still stick with this concept of T, Newton's T, which is the axis at the bottom of a graph. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't capture many of the important elements that turn out to be critical in today's data governance decision around um, data processing. And so what I do is I basically say with the flying fish that this, the, these things only proceed in one direction and we should be very careful when we infer other temporal aspects. So let me see if I grasp this. You have a diagram out there that I'll post on my website so others can visualize this. But in terms of a real use case to utilize this theory, I see it being applied to big tech in terms of, you know, your personal data flowing in various directions, one being to big tech. Then later, your data can appear on the surface level in another form. Am I close? Yeah. Your example. Uh, well, this particular example or any example, it needs, we need to dial the scale down. Uh, once we start reifying things as big tech and then uh, the data, what will happen is that conversations will mush. They'll get really, really mushy. And then um, people will shift on to the, the social aspects of the data problem. We're interested in the data aspects of the social problem. <laughs> Got it. And, and so what we, what we do is we have to ground things as quickly as we can to our community being affected by um, some sort of technological problem that results in data either being created or inferred. And then the applications that data is put to. And once we're, once we're in that territory, it becomes a lot easier to, to think things through, which comes back to the flying fish. 
the flying fish is bounded. Um, it's actually a way to show complexity. The, the reason why there are those thin little, little lines, pardon me, those thin little lines that seem to obscure the whole, but they, they, what they actually do is they allow our brain to hold a whole bunch of different disparate concepts in, uh, in a semi-determined manner. So we know that some elements of, uh, of these, some parts of these uh, elements of the data are meaningful, others we're not quite sure about. And what it does is we can actually hold more in our mind. It's a crazy, it's a crazy um, thing. And so that's why it seems, when you really look at it, it seems to flicker, it, 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 it moves. And that's what we want because second law of thermodynamics and this whole concept that data is somehow this interesting living thing out of time. No, it makes sense. I, I really like it. And I don't know about you, but I definitely want to be on a beach somewhere looking at crystal clear water and see where my data is flowing. Exactly right. You bring um, up something as well, Rohan, around the data being like water. And I kind yeah. of tie an additional saying that I always hear in my head as an engineer that Bruce Lee is constantly saying, be like water, right? As, as engineers, yeah, I love your reference because to me, I think of engineers being the fish and moving in the schools and keeping things in the right direction. But at the same time, it also challenges us to have our mindsets like water. So as the data or the school of the fish continue to move around, we need yeah. to be flexible enough to understand why is that data expanding or contracting? Why is that data, yeah. you know, what does that data mean? And then we have to adapt our skill set to be able to handle that situation. So this is a really strong metaphor. Yeah. Ah, good. I'm glad you like it. It's not mine. I learned it from a great colleague of mine, um, Moana Eru Eru, and he um, developed it in a conversation with a tohanga and uh, they described it to me at a time when I was really struggling to identify risk, the, the really serious risk that I felt was coming, but I couldn't quite figure out how to conceive of it. And this would have been 2017. And once this concept of an ever-flowing pool of water with its stocks and its flows and how it behaves like water, that was the breakthrough. Because uh, if, if you've ever owned a home and you know that when water gets in, you don't know where it's going to come out, right? Water inside a structure, a building, can go up. It's crazy. And so we should expect the same sort of weird behaviors in data as we do in water. So what happens when someone you don't want fishing catches a fish. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I like this. This is good, good metaphor. Well, um, the problem is there's not much stopping them. That's the first point. You can't put GPS trackers on fish, right? So there's got to be some control there. <laughs> so, yeah, to a degree we can. Yeah, we can, we can fool around with the metadata. But what we can't fool around is bullshitters. Um, and we can't, we can't, um, sorry, we can't mitigate um, bullshitters with convincing analytics. And that's what we saw with Cambridge Analytica in 2016. 
we thought, oh no, this is just the worst outcome possible. Um, when I say bullshitter, I mean specifically in re- relation to this article, paper, guy called Frankfurt, I think it might be, on bullshit. The difference between a liar and a bullshitter is that the bullshitter doesn't care about the truth. And I thought that really uh, resonates with me in my work because I've seen good data, good data work disparaged and had its uh, value reduced through political means. Um, and sometimes just, you know, small p politics, just petty stuff in a, in a meeting room. And what that tells me is that it is actually quite easy to undermine facts. The challenge that I find in a lot of those boardrooms is the data and statistics can be skewed to support somebody's argument, right? You can mismatch and tweak that data a little bit so that as an executive, my point wins in the boardroom versus some of the other folks. And having engineers and people who understand the data as well as the business and the operations to really kind of cut through some of the, the bullshit that we hear in, in meetings to talk about how to leverage data, how to protect data, or how to migrate data from point A to point B. Yeah. Back in, golly, 2014, 2015, uh, and I'm inside a large organization and I'm looking at how decisions are framed and then made. And my conclusion was uh, a meeting is never about what the agenda says. Um, there is a really you know, deep, performative, uh, anthropological side to it. Uh, in a different environment where you have professionals um, applying themselves to a, a problem scientifically, that's when we get a higher output of knowledge, you know, of certainty or, or the other way around, a greater reduction of uncertainty. And so then the change I've seen happen, however, in the last couple of years is uh, executives realizing that they can be caught short in the boardroom and therefore um, are benefiting from a broader array of information. Uh, It's not necessarily, you know, to be uh, definitionally complete uh, but it helps win that meeting's resolution, which is how we want organizations to function. Very interesting. So you're currently writing a book related to this theory. Could you talk to that a bit and how soon we can expect it to be published? Oh, man. Well, I've said it for this year. Um, the topic is uh, a bit of a drift, actually. The topic is entropy. Um, which is a crazy, a crazy uh, thought to think when you think about entropy. Um, but it, is, it turns out to be critical in figuring out how to govern data for quantum. That's, that's, that's what set me down this field. Once I figured out that, well, not figured out, but once I saw that quantum computers leverage quantum properties of data, I realized, oh, my Lord, I have to read this hard out and fast. And I've been going for probably about a year and a half now. It's been hard out. And so the focus is on this thing called entropy, which is basically how, how blurred our view is of something. So if our, if our view of something is highly blurred, it has high entropy. We don't want that. We want low entropy. 
just in general as a life principle. So that leads to we have to learn how to particularize things better, far, far better. And this, this is where we see all these social uh, harms come into play because, you know, um, people are, are deeply, deeply upset. Part of the issue is they just do not have good representation. What that means is the official data, the numbers governing the interchange uh, is a few or very high entropy. And I think what this means is it leads to some of these fundamental disagreements about who writes who I am. And that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. You could actually use this as an organizational framework. Yeah, well, I'll do a flying fish of it. There'll be a flying fish in the book. And I've found that if you, if you can't squash what you think is a complex problem onto a flying fish, you, you just have not thought through your basic question. Got it. Yeah, because there's so much complexity we can pack in there in terms of all the conditional uh, relationships that we can solve 80% of our problems. And that's all my aim. That's all I want to do is find those 20% of causes that solve 80% of our effects and then just move on. <laughs> so I'm curious because this is a struggle personally I face in with working in IT for so long. Use your example of when you have a school of fish with a main point, there's usually three to five sub points. And then there's typically three to five sub points from those sub points. It's almost yep. like an inception of yep. so many different levels. Yep. As you get into a book like this, how do you find you are able to stay on topic when there's so many opportunities to go in so many different subcategories or follow a different school of fish as it breaks off? Well, they're, they're not all equally meaningful in terms of causality for the thing that you're interested in. So what it means is... Basically, we're taking an agile approach and bolting it on to how we come across new things, which is risk management. And we stay in that perpetual beta space. We stay there. Now, if we are successful in exploring the problem space, we'll be able to build out behind us. We can build the spine out behind us. Sweet as, no worries. We, what we do do is we stop exploring once we set hit Sorry, bad Kiwi. Once we hit um, a preset stopping point, that's the critical thing. So that's why I only go three layers down. When you look at the flying fish, yeah, it's moving in one direction, but cannot, you can also see it three-dimensionally. You can pivot it and, and turn it vertical. And all, all of that internal volume um, is you know, yours to play with. You bring up a, a good concept. And it's probably something as engineers, we all do subconsciously. Yeah. But looking at issues in a 3D mindset or even a four-dimensional, yeah. looking at not just the issue from point A to point B, but it's all the complexities and levels to that. And yeah. those issues tie into, right? And how you could follow a train of, a, of data and make sure that that data is protected from point A to point B and making sure that there's no man in the middle yeah. attack so that people are stealing the data or injecting yeah. into that data string that we don't expect. Yeah. This is, there's two, there's two parts of data. It is something and it is also about something. 
So engineers work on the something. I work on the about something. And uh, I've found that the, the way forward is when there's a feedback loop between those two groups. Once, once there is, you can, the engineers who working on the something, i.e. the actual physical order that this little system has become, then I work on, you know, I figure out how people are relating to that and the meanings that they're drawing from that and can draw from that and the defaults that are hardwired in. And then that feeds back to the engineers who are, who are tinkering with the physical thing. I emphasize the physical because of the uh, work of Cesar Hidalgo, the MIT um, statistical physicist and economist, who is a big influence in my thinking. It was, uh, yeah, it was a, a big breakthrough once we started to realize or could realize that data in my world does not exist, is disembodied. Data in your world is embodied. Both are true simultaneously. It's a, it's a tricky thing to manage. Takes it to a whole another level. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think one of the things I'll work through on this, in this book is um, because of their entropy, their entropic properties, data disembodied probably exists outside of time because there's no human involved. This is one of the tests we can apply to AI. Can AI distinguish human and non-human experiences of time? I think it's a pretty big one, that one. <laughs> I, I actually have never, never heard that question posed. And you just opened up a floodgates of thoughts in my mind. Yeah, what, mate. Exactly what, right. What's the... <laughs> What's the current data that's available that speaks to this? Can, does AI, is there a rating scale that we can look at to say today AI can distinguish 20% versus you know, the remaining 80% of what's actual human behavior versus data sets that humans have created? Well, it would be a good test for you to pose or maybe you're the people who, who listen. Um, you, can, you just run a series of experiments. And it's the it's the the experimenter's choice of experimental apparatus that actually tells us the most. In terms of, I just take us back to why I'm focused on time. Newton's t. Remember, Newton used t to prove his points. We've accepted that as true, and we're actually just we're simply not seeing all the questions that have been complexified away. And so once we start going, actually, this, this thing at the bottom of the graph actually doesn't represent uh, the world very well, we start to figure out, we start to surface questions and then we apply science to questions and then we're fine. As long as we're applying the scientific method um, relatively quickly, we're okay. What kind of journals or documentation or websites do you follow that keeps you up to date on how this changes, because to me, this is a lot more than just cyber, a lot more than just data. You're kind of covering physics. You're covering a lot of probably even some psychological aspects of how people are looking right. or understanding their data. So how do you stay fresh and, and relevant? Read, read quantum. So read articles that surface into your mainstream or professional reading that have quantum content 
you'll quickly figure out whether or not the article is just reusing a standard paragraph because you'll see the paragraphs emerge. Uh, you discount them and then you look for people asking really interesting questions and then you simply start thinking it through yourself. Now, what, where this will take us is the work of Judea Pearl, the book of why. This will take us to causal modeling, which, which then takes us to a great, um, a great place that I certainly like, which is um, mathless reasoning. And this is why I'm interested in art and AI, because what, when we put up a painting in front of a person, Right, there's a ton of mathless reasoning that's occurring. Now, we want as much of that to be epistemically true as possible. And so what it does is it enables us to make much greater use of people with arts expertise and helping us in a range of data governance problems. Is that because everyone's interpretation of art is different? It's yes and. Okay. There are rules of perspective that all artists since the 16th century have followed. Now, it turns out that the invention of perspective helped um, establish science and uh, bring about the Renaissance because when you look at a vanishing point, it implies infinity. And yet at the time, the formal teaching was that all that was, was known is known. Uh, that's what you get when you had Aristotle plus, you know, a theologically heavy education. But uh, it just even simply understanding simple, simple elements like um, how the, um, the infinity effect plays with art and data is critical because what we're discovering is that there are more and more dimensions of data that are operable. This, this thing is far more complex than we've been led to believe. We've probably fooled ourselves into believing. Far beyond the metadata. Yeah, metadata is like um, it's, we have enough information we can plot the course of a comet, but we still have to land a, a little lander there to figure out what the comet is made of. Well, actually, that was a bad example because we can figure out what the comet is made of, but you get my point. Uh, we land rockets on meteors and comets for reasons. We have to get there to fit to answer a question. So data will tell you something, but not that much. That's why I'm going to be talking good tech fest. I'll be talking about um, why data is dumb. It's causally dumb. It's a great stream of consciousness because <laughs> at the end of the day, technology, programming, what we do in AI until we reach some general AI level is nothing more than the creation of the rules of the game that we tell it. Yes. Like, like when we create metadata, it's somebody making the conscious choice to say, these are the tags I want to represent this piece of art, which is going to get even more interesting now that I'm tying <laughs> what I'm hearing with new NFTs and art and how crypto and blockchain are really supposed to transform art in the digital age. And yep. it brings a whole different perspective to my mind of now when we look at NFTs and this digital art, how many more additional categories or data sets or tags or metadata are we going to be able to identify by leveraging 
both the artist and the scientist to analyze a piece of art, to come up with those infinite lines or those different perspectives that we want to highlight as we grow into this new digital art world of people being able to buy, sell, trade their own custom artwork. Yeah. Wow. There's lots in there. Uh, art, the art market is fundamentally social. So I think the digital art market will behave slightly differently. Um, you had heaps and heaps of stuff in there. The, um, I'll go back to the, the there's a, an uncomfortableness with the complexity right now. If you think of an astronomical example, for many years, um, we considered that the sun moved around the earth. It is visible. We talk about it to this day when we say the sun rises. Other people were saying that the opposite is true. They were the Copernicans. And then there was Tycho Bray. He was saying, well, parts of you are both true. And that's what happened uh, in, the real, in the real world. What's happening to us right now is exactly the same thing, except that 14 different types of alien have landed. And it, so it doesn't matter to what degree we're comfortable with explaining what's going on, everyone's uh, scale, uh, scale limits have been broken multiple times. You've got alien and then aliens and then 14 of them. And so what happens, this is from risk, is it's logarithmic. It's not exponential. It's logarithmic. It, suddenly changes, there's a sudden change of state. And that is what is happening, has happened across a range of things within the last year. And this is what COVID has shown. It's shown we are deeply fragile. And there's another reason why every social issue is a data issue. That's interesting. You're right. So Chris, if it's okay, I know the, the other topic that I'd like to cover is a little bit around AI and ethics, because I know Rohan's tied pretty tight into that. And I hear a lot of Elon Musk and his, his public interviews kind of talk about the danger of AI and the dysregulation of AI and how you know, we're almost going to cross a point of no return when the AI gets so advanced or in that general level. And there's a lot of disagreements around the time frame, some people think it could be within our lifetime. Some people think it's 100 years out. But regardless, where do you stand or what's, what's kind of some of your perspectives on AI and the ethics? And, and Yeah, right. Okay, so we have to be able to separate logical speculation from doom-mongering. And I, there are two tests that I have in mind. And the first test, I've mentioned it just before, the, the extent to which an AI can detect a human experience of time. That's point number one. Um, because if it can't, there is a level of epistemic safety for us. There's a deeper point there. It basically means we'll be able to uh, figure out areas that it can't see and can't go. The second thing, the second test is... It leverages a quote by Andre Breton uh, of the Surrealists. And he wrote that a man who cannot imagine a horse galloping on a tomato is an idiot. It's a good one, eh? And so what we now do is we play our substitution game and say an AI that cannot imagine a horse galloping on a tomato is an idiot. And the extension is we would not 
put idiots in charge of serious systems, right? Right. So that if the AI fails my Breton test and can't distinguish time, there are there are now areas that we can keep AI out of and make sure humans are involved in very clearly. Now, in terms of security in AI, you look at the potential threat of man versus machine, right? If machines are built to pattern behaviors after humans and it's human nature to deceive others, you know, what controls will exist that will prevent a fine-tuned AI machine from mimicking that sort of human action? Uh, there's two points there. The first point is until AI figures out how to think causally, right, it cannot be as smart as us. It is a, a, an actual constraint. So point of safety there. However, the problem then shifts. Because humans love killing each other, aren't, isn't AI uh, enabling us to do it in much better ways? And the answer is yes. <laughs> We are horrible creatures to ourselves and um, delight in killing ourselves whatever um, sophisticated means. Now, the good news is, following the 1914 to 1945 period, we figured out what bad looks like, right? That's bad. And we have a range of international treaties and organizations and structures to be a part of that will keep us together. That's why a minimum level of positive internationalism is required. What about countries who may not adhere to those rules, regulations, or be part of those, those groups that have been formed since the early ages, right? There's some countries who go about their own and they may sign into an agreement or an accord or, Agree, but on the back end, they do their own experimentation, whether it's on humans or technology to continue to advance their agendas. Right. Well, (laughs) there's no global policeman, mate. The actual answer is if there is a greater variety of instruments for people to cooperate, there will be greater cooperation. All right. Critical point. This is one reason why Global South narratives are important right now is because we need collectively to get more, better instruments out there that will enable Global South communities to express themselves and ask questions of uh, the Global North. The more that happens, uh, the better for everyone. Now, where countries decline to take part in things like the Paris Agreement, there are issues of how to enforce that. And ultimately, social proof is uh, one of the most important things we have. What do you mean by social proof? Things can become unacceptable and suddenly unacceptable. This is one of the issues in data, right? To to a certain degree, the system has been able to creak along on um, data that is fundamentally racist. COVID comes along. George Floyd, a whole bunch of things show racial disparities. It cannot be ignored. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the cool line changes and you need to be on one side quite clearly. That's what I mean. That's social proof right there. 
And that's what's happening with this fantastic Gen Y, Gen Z generations. The, the kids today are great. They're, they're really, really cold. They're so switched on. Agreed. So we spoke about world governance, but do you see a time in the future where we will have AI governance to prevent it from being used in the court of law or the need to govern intent of software? Yep. There will be, there are enough parallel governance streams in place that are already connected that will draw AI in. The two streams I look at are professionals who wish to move across jurisdictions and transit uh, and you know um, country lines, and then there's the audit professionals and the risk professionals, um, and then there are the people that are wishing to reduce transaction costs within large logistics. Right, the 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 issue of supply chains is critical, and those supply chains run on standardisation. So where there is a growing scientific body, where there's a growing professional body, and where there is a large logistics reason, there will be convergence. Simply because if you are an AI superpower, you want to be able to sell your stuff. <laughs> and and you, need the, you need the global trade mechanism for that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it works for them in a way. For sure. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, there is such a thing as comity, you know, brotherhood of humanity. There is such a thing. If you put people in a, on, a, on a beach somewhere with some good um, tunes, they'll generally chill out and we can uh, learn about each other, right? What have you seen outside of the United States, right? Because most of the companies and organizations I work with have been inside the United States. And I yeah. see more and more companies like mortgage institutions adopting an AI process to remove cognitive bias or um, biases that people may be placing on the review of a mortgage loan based upon their own experience. Therefore, mortgage companies have seen greater data showing that if they extend a mortgage to somebody in a certain category or age group that historically they haven't, that loan is actually being paid back with better quality than the person has seen because they leverage the pure data to make that decision. Are you seeing companies, you know, either inside or outside the United States trying to adapt more of AI models to make strong business decisions based upon data that they've not really tapped into in the past? Yes, um, definitely they are. Whether or not they're recognizing that they have to ask a different order of questions is a different matter. And to that matter, the answer is no. So we are figuring out how to use more buttons on our, on our device, but we're not figuring out better ways to use the device in relation to our problems. So this is, this is one of the things uh, involved in instrument effects. Uh, automation bias. Just ask the machine. It'll tell us. Um, instrument effects. Um, you know, the telescope itself is, uh, produces instrument effects. Every instrument we use has a whole range of effects that we can't necessarily see. And it's when we're asking these second and third order questions, that's when we start progressing. I know I didn't actually answer your question. 
Um, you you highlighted a lot that, again, this is very complex. There's no simple one answer. And this requires company to not just ask the right questions, but to continue to ask those second and third order follow-up questions to figure out what do they really want to leverage the data for and, and what problems are they trying to solve for at the end of the day? Yeah. If they do their job right, they set up a tight and close feedback loop. They ask good questions and they receive good answers. That's what everyone wants. At the moment, we aren't realizing that we can ask better questions and that it doesn't matter how good the refinement on the existing pool of answers is if those answers were to bad questions, right? Epistemically, that's true. And so the only way forward, this is why coming back to that flying fish, I show movement. The only way is to ask better questions continuously and build your own knowledge base that way. Apply science to it and then course correct, move on. So how do organizations better structure themselves? It almost seems like like you almost need to have like a chief innovative data officer, somebody who can come in and continue to understand the business, understand the technology, understand the data, but also kind of be somewhat removed a level or two at a higher level to be able to pause, take a step back and ask those questions in a manner that other people aren't because they're so deep in the weeds. It's two words, uh, finance and governance. So um, we have to set rules around how money works um, and those rules have significant instrument effects. Those instrument effects influence the way we approach governance decisions. So the way to influence that is to basically start requiring different elements to our governance uh, systems and the finance uh, system will adjust within the the extent it can and then we will find uh, that organisations can take different shape. Otherwise, you know, there is a reason that the limited liability company wasn't was um, innovated back in the 16th century by the Dutch. It does a certain job. And what we're finding in the data governance world, particularly in like things like data trusts, is that the organizational and structural questions fundamentally come back to governance with the two limitations of finance structures and legal instruments. It sounds uh, a little bit constricted, but there's actually a lot of room uh, within those two constraints. Very much so. So I I have to ask this question a little self-servingly because I know we talked about data a lot. Yeah. And a lot of this typically is the companies owning the data, but the data that most of these companies own are our data. It's information about us as a consumer or our purchasing habits or our credentials how can as a consumer or as a a person who the data is about, how can we have insight, say, or control over that data? I know there's GDPR and the right to be forgotten and some other countries have some things in play, but it's nowhere near where I think we should be as a society. Yeah, we don't have the structure for it. Ultimately, there will need to be some degree of automated data assistance 
Um, but the thing about data, right, is it is fundamentally a record of human activity. Um, it doesn't exist without us, and it is basically about us and what we do. The, where I'm going with this, there's no such thing as our data. If someone else has touched it, it's, there's a joint element going on. It is data about me used by you. That's, that's, the, that's the relationship that we are weak on. And the good news is with the leaked AI regulations from the EU that we know that governments, agencies are looking at this. And, and now we're doing it in all jurisdictions. So I think we'll, we'll be seeing 2021, 2022, 2023, a really, really good step forward with the data governance instruments. I don't know about you guys, but I need a strong drink after this one. Rohan. What is your drink of choice after a long day? Okay. Well, you might not like this, but um, kombucha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Straight it, kombucha? It just, uh, well, uh, it, I think it needs a fruit flavor, like a okay. passion fruit or a raspberry. Okay. All right. No alcohol, though. Not usually. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Not usually. I got you. Well, if you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Ah, uh, that's great. <laughs> well, um, the, the bar would be um, the entropy bar. And the point about the entropy is you want high particularity. So it, it literally has every combination, combinatorial drink in the world. Uh, and my job as a bartender is actually just to figure out um, you as a person and then I can deliver that ideal cocktail. How about that? Yes. With no AI, right? Just you. Correct. Okay. That is quite correct because right. the more we use it, the higher entropy. Nice. Well, Rohan, thanks for coming to the show. I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your thoughts with us. You take care and be safe. All right, thanks, man. Take it easy. Thanks, Rohan. Take care. Bye. Barcode patrons. If you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit the barcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.